0: Man, what's the word intentional mean for you? Look, uh, my business was built on humility. And what I would say when it comes to intentional is life's going to keep trucking, whether you like it or not. Entropy is the way of the universe. Most of the time, we don't have any say in what happens.
1: Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Welcome back, everybody. We are in episode two of this mini-series, which is called Achieving Ownership and Leadership Alignment. The entire point of this mini-series is that you have to come up with your target equity valuation at a point in time and the income, aka the distributions that you want on the way there, because as an owner, you have to get alignment with yourself, your partners, if you got other partners or investors, and then that has to be rolled down into leadership so the leadership team knows how much resources that they have available and what the time frame and the capabilities that they have in order to achieve ownership's goals. So getting alignment is so crucial and so many conflicts and tensions arise out of not having alignment and really not having clarity of a goal. So if you've not checked out The first episode of the mini-series, last week I had Dan Grimswood on the show, and we talked about this alignment with ownership using the operating agreement. We talked about governance, operating agreements, shotgun clauses, exit strategies, valuations, a bunch of stuff. Laying the groundwork for today's episode, where I have Brandon Henry on the show. Brandon is actually a longtime dear friend. I met him back in 2015 in a training class, and uh, honestly my amount of respect for Brandon is unquantifiable because I sat down with him and he knew so much more than I did about all these technical things that we've been covering on the podcast now for seven years. And I really just wanted to become as smart as Brandon. So for whatever it's worth, I think he's uh, he's got a couple good things to provide a value on this conversation. A little bit of Brandon's background is he has created a firm called Mosaic Advisors where they are a family office firm. They manage about 25 families and three or $4 billion dollars. I know, like a rounding error, right? And uh, he has such a unique objective approach because he wants to go in there and truly wrap around the entire plan for these families that run a bunch of family businesses and their wealth is huge and a lot of times is locked in the business. And so he's gonna walk through, what is it like having a business that big Or businesses that big where they're running them like financial assets. And so Brandon is going to be talking about from the eyes of the boardroom. So, or I should say through the eyes of the boardroom, like, what is it like? What is it like in the boardroom that also can uh, double as the family uh, Thanksgiving table what are the conversations? How do people get alignment? How do they set the target equity valuations? How do they determine the distributions necessary? And then how do they bring in third party presidents and executives that are running the business based on the partnerships or the family's goals, depending on what those family's goals are. So we have a huge conversation that I think one of the biggest takeaways that I had is that These are family privately businesses and they have the same problems a lot of times that we do. They just have more resources, a couple extra zeros, but it's people and people have businesses and without clarity, without clear goals, it's hard to get ownership and leadership alignment. And this is a great episode on how to think like an owner, what matters from that ownership hat. The other couple episodes that we're going to be rolling into is about from the leadership perspective and how do the leadership and ownership teams interact in order to line up towards that target long-term goal. So I think this is going to be a blast of a conversation for everybody to listen into, to think like an owner, to understand when you have that owner's hat on, what matters, and then how do you roll that down through the strategic executives that are then driving the operations to accomplish ownership's goals. So we have one last announcement. It is we have only a couple spots left at the moment of this intro recording for the Intention Growth Bootcamp, May 11th and 12th. We've got 20 entrepreneurs already booked. So uh, looking for a couple of fun people that are trying to get alignment with their partnerships or with their uh, executive team. It's going to accomplish everything that we're talking about in this podcast. So if it resonates with you, go check out the bootcamp at Arcona.io. The link is in the show notes. So thanks everybody for tuning in and I appreciate Brandon for coming in on the show and giving us a bunch of wisdom from what it's like to view the company from the ownership perspective and the boardroom. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be. And you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace. And you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash the reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor whether that's sell part of it or some of it essentially just have as many choices as you want But what we find is that most times, entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future and I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, hundred and some employees, and my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or should I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment, because. If you organize your financials in a certain way, and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials, and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner, and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the decisions clear today to say if I do these things what's the impact on cash flow today my ability to fund my growth take the distributions pay for taxes all while staying in line progressing towards the valuation that I want so go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy Brandon what's up man how are you doing my friend I uh, know I don't even know how to start this off with like seven years of history or whatever the hell it is I'm sitting here going to all the things and all the conversations we've had I'm just really excited to have you on the show man
0: I'm excited to be here, and we can certainly talk about business stuff, but uh, probably more fun to riff on everything else we normally talk about. <laughs> I,
1: I don't know. I know that this is a, sometimes they can have the censored, but I think we'll keep that uh, for a different conversation. <laughs> I uh, a well, I, I want to start off by telling a story I'm going to make, because you were like, hey, can I make you blush? And I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to do that to you. Okay. So when we, you and I met in the exit planning um, certification. I think it was 2014 or 15 or whatever it was. That's right. And I remember just sitting there having a conversation like, wow, I can't believe how few people understand how the big picture works. I'm like, how did you figure this out? And you walked me through this estate plan with this buy sell and how the taxes worked. I was like, how in the F did you figure that out? And you're like, I learned it because no one else taught me. And I was like, that's the smartest dude I've ever met. <laughs> so like what that that seed you planted, man, I will say that this podcast is a partly because of that conversation.
0: Well, I I can't tell you how humbled and honored I am. As somebody who counts you as a friend, but also as an avid listener of the podcast, and know the good work that you're doing, and have seen your journey, that that really is a privilege.
1: I appreciate that. And I don't get an actual sincere compliment. It's usually like baked in sarcasm, which I usually, I know how how to handle that. We're we're both very uncomfortable right now. Yeah. All right. Let's start with what we do know how to do and be comfortable with. Why don't you give the listeners a little bit of your background, and specifically some of the The reasons you're doing what you're doing and kind of your upbringing, because I think it's super interesting kind of lens. As we get into this conversation, you didn't just parachute out of an ivory tower, which I think is an interesting. uh...
0: (laughs) Yeah, far, far from it. So uh, I'll start with where I'm at, and then I can talk about how I got here. And of course, for the benefit of hindsight, it's going to feel like a straight line, but it was certainly anything but that. Uh, So I lead a small firm here in Houston that provides business consulting and advice to closely held business owning families. Our average client is worth a couple hundred million dollars. Their businesses generate hundreds of millions of revenue and tens of millions of dollars of income. Almost all first-generation wealth creators. And we operate at the intersection of tax, law, business, finance, and serve not as a quarterback but more as a general contractor. Our subs are not HVAC tax electricians. They're attorneys and accountants and investment advisors. And the really privileged space that we get to hold is When all of those things collide, that's where real decisions and outcomes come from. And Mm. we sit right at the nucleus of all of that activity. And over the last 12 or so years since we went out on our own, what we've come to realize and appreciate is you can't make a business decision without it affecting your personal life or your personal life without affecting your business life. And, And we joke about the dining room table and the conference room table merging into each other seamlessly. And so from our perspective, and going back to that conversation, you can't have a conversation or dialogue around income tax planning or state tax planning without it having Mm -hmm. dramatic impacts on the operating business. And what we've come to appreciate, certainly in my role as serving on about a dozen private Mm -hmm. company boards, is that you've got a bunch of very sophisticated and hardworking, well-meaning people focused inward on the business, and they're making decisions that might work perfect in the standalone business context, but when you helicopter up and look at things from the perspective of the ownership group, it can have perverse outcomes and not all negative, but at a minimum, they should be understood. And so that's Mm -hmm. the state we get to uh, get to occupy and it's a real privilege.
1: Yeah, it's awesome, man. And and I've been, you know, I'll I'll reciprocate and for those listeners, don't don't worry, this is not going to be a fluffy, uh, like a bunch of compliments (laughs) going back and forth, but it's been really interesting because, you know, Brandon, as I've watched your journey too, is trying to figure out in the wealth management as you guys evolved from just, you know, like you and I went down from seven years ago is all the bullshit from fee only, you know, like the people trying to be a fiduciary, trying to do it right. And then the prop versus the products and you have been migrating towards this intersection of what you described of where you fit. And I think a lot of people, a lot of advisors try to fit that spot, but there's a lot of challenges that a lot of people have with trying to fill that role the right way. We don't necessarily have to get into that, but there was something interesting on one of the conversations we had recently when you were talking about about the definition of a family office and how yours compares to that because you were talking about you know and I don't want to put words in your mouth but like where what a true family office is compared to what you guys are and how you would compare that it's just is an interesting way of putting your services in the marketplace so people can kind of wrap their heads around it
0: well I, I guess what I would say Ryan um, it, it's oftentimes a privilege and an, an honor and opportunity to start with nothing because you get to engineer the business that you want to have versus all of the entrenched momentum and success of of what has been done in the past. And so we went on our own. What we realized early on was that if we were um, simply had to be the smartest people in the room or had to be the hardest working people in the room, we weren't going to have a competitive advantage. And so we engineered the business to charge a fixed fee. We have nothing to sell, uh, which means that we can be truly objective. And the reality is for most people, when you think about that entrepreneurial journey, and they start at the beginning of their business, and maybe they've got uh, an accountant, maybe they've got a bookkeeper, perhaps they've got a banker, and and as they progress, there's insurance agents and attorneys and investment advisors and investment bankers and consultants (laughs) of all stripes, and everybody's got their own unique perspective, and everybody's got an axe to grind with respect to their unique services, and while I don't think on average anybody's out there to get someone, uh, they're not looking at the whole picture, and so Mm -hmm. what we have attempted to accomplish by having this fixed fee model and not having anything to sell. We're not in the money management business trying to earn an asset management fee. We're not in the hourly game where clients are worried about us backing up the truck. We're on a retainer and (laughs) it doesn't matter how how many hours the client uses us one quarter or the next, they know exactly what they're going to, to get. And it's allowed us to frankly punch above our weight with respect to the professionals that we get to work with, but also the families that we serve and, we had no idea and
1: you get to and you get to speak your mind which i'm sure you like to do i, I, mean,
0: I was on a board meeting this morning and,
1: and shared some very uh probably
0: unpopular views with with some of the folks uh, on the call so yeah yeah it, it gives us a lot of latitude to to uh, frankly dole out medicine i'm like the mary poppins of advice right it's medicine here medicine there every once in a while we add a little sugar to the mix but the reality is Many of these business owner families could really benefit from somebody objectively saying, hey, other people who were further down the road did it this way. Here's where they stubbed their toe. You'd be wise to heed that wisdom. Maybe you don't go down that path or maybe you choose to go a different route, but at least be aware of where other families who were in a similar situation had a hard time.
1: Yeah, man. And it's, uh, it's so needed because of the complexity, uh, like of the machine and the interconnectedness. where if you make one decision, the ripple effect, the second, third order effect, which I do believe that you understand like, Hey, this is going to happen, but don't worry. These things will probably happen down the road. Let's talk about, we, we can talk about those type of things of what those are, but Let's talk about you, the fact that you have the first generation owners, right? So, as you and I were kind of talking about how we're going to slide this interview in and in this conversation into the mini series of like from the boardroom, from the ownership level, what are those challenges and like how are they view it? But it's not that clean, right? And you know, I know that. So, let's talk about like, you know, what does it mean to be first generation with this kind of money? And does the money and the zeros matter to the problems that the, everybody's listening into?
0: No, as the philosopher Biggie Small said, no mo money, no mo problems. Uh, I mean, the, the, the reality is that it's the exact same challenges at the business and family level, just amplified. And our typical client has already achieved an extraordinary level of success. And the reality is most closely held businesses don't have a board in the way that it's oftentimes thought of. And to the extent that they have a group of people that get together on a regular basis, That is typically some executives and maybe family members in the business who occupy too many of the same hats and don't have the ability or the experience to disentangle themselves from the various roles. And the reality is, you know, for us, our average client, they're a they're a craftsperson. They'd be more comfortable in a pair of coveralls uh, than they are in a three piece suit. They started their business. They've had their head down growing their business, they've become excellent at what they do, but they've never stepped back to say, how can we grow and improve this business and treat it like, and and, obviously uh, pulling on the major theme for for your organization, like an asset, with the same focus and rigor uh, from the family and ownership perspective as they do on the underlying operations. And that's really needed, I think, in order to extract the most benefit from that board. the group I was on a board meeting with this morning, when we first started working together, they had a board. It was three executives and four family members. And literally, as the first outside board member, every conversation was just a continuation of reviewing the PL. and <laughs> There was no strategic conversation. There was no uh, interest or, or focus on the dynamic of, hey, the fact that there are a bunch of trusts that own this company, it changes the... Uh, intent of this business. In, in one respect, it means we don't have an estate tax problem that's going to force us to sell this business because our patriarch is 80 years old and doesn't have a 50-year actual or runway. Uh, but it also means that we've got family members who require distributions to maintain their lifestyle. And so we've got executives who are being held to a specific standard, which is going to require a fairly large reinvestment back in the business. But yet we've got these family needs that are to spend a significant portion of that capital out of the business and then take that one step further. We've got some folks that are still in the business, some that are not. And one of our current challenges is we really would benefit from having a large credit facility. And in this time of, of in the banking world, that's a challenge. Banks are, are reining in their lending ability. And so one of the requests from these banks is a personal guarantee. And one of the shareholders said, nothing to it. No PG, not going to happen under any circumstance. And so we've got the business and the executives who are forced to are being charged with growing the business. And it can only grow if we accomplish these specific things and and go along on these specific initiatives. And we've got shareholders who are saying, not going to happen. And so
1: we have this internal conflict
0: (laughs) that's occurring.
1: Clear as mud. Clear as mud. Well, and I think about like, so how did how that manifests that I've been a part of in my personal experience or other other of our clients that I've worked with, where it's like it's something along the lines of ownership that is probably like the craftspeople, like you said, says, We're gonna do fifty million while they're sucking all the cash out at the family meetings and then holding their executives to the fifty million with no funding. <laughs>
0: Well, and, and so I get to, uh, as part of my board service, um, interview executives on a pretty regular basis who are, are being recruited to these companies. And I've, I'm always surprised, I suppose I shouldn't be at this point, how insightful their questions are as they're transitioning to a family business. They're, they're nervous about all of the things that you would expect they are, from, from nepotism and their ability to advance the business based on somebody with a similar last name leapfrogging them, to family infighting to family tax obligations and financial obligations, draining the business or or kneecapping the business's growth. I mean, a family-owned business in many respects is even harder than a traditional business, which we all know the statistics. Very few of them are successful. And so once you've reached escape velocity on the actual business, then you overlay all of these family dynamics and things get (laughs) really complicated. Uh, They're not uh, so complicated they can't be overcome, but it doesn't happen accidentally. Right? You've got mm-hmm. to invest some real time and energy. And frankly, uh, and this isn't meant to be a pejorative, but people need to be trained on what it means to be a good owner of a business, not yep. just a good executive, not just a good business leader or manager. But these ownership, uh, you know, to be a good owner requires skills that are developed over time, not God-given talents.
1: Well, and, that's, and I love that. And what I like about um, your view of this is that what it means to be an owner i think a lot of cause so for all intents and purposes i mean the listeners could be for any ranges of any size company but like you know from on on the training business that we have there's a lot of ranges of different size companies all pro- privately owned for the most part and on the services side it's generally between a couple million and 70 ish or something like that so when you get it like i think a lot there's this narrative of like oh those people that you're working with have figured out how to, what it means to be an owner and what these companies as an asset means. And, and like, I, I, I continue to have this philosophy. It's like, there's private equity that comes in those spreadsheets and then there's operations. And then there's like very few people in between that. So like, what do you, th- what does it mean to be a good owner to you? And then I want to walk through, like when you're jumping into the shit storm, for lack of a better way to put it, how do you then take what you think good looks like to then start organizing that chaos. Uh, so 60%
0: of the United States is overweight or obese. It's not because it's not easy to understand what to do to lose weight, right? Eat right, move around. Um, but it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to execute on, right? And, and yeah. what I would share is the majority of these things that I've experienced is good habits, good tactics, good routines. They're not complicated, but they require discipline and they require real effort and they don't happen overnight, and the the benefit accrues over time, right? Like all compounding, it requires time to really reap the, the reward. And so, you know, if you will start with a typical private equity backed business, everybody understands that having a private equity owner is going to change the way the business is run, because they're reverse engineering for an outcome, right? I'm yeah, buying this. There business, you go. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Fund. The fund has a shelf life of 10 years. I'm buying it in the third year. I have to have a terminal event by year seven. And I've got to do everything I can to optimize this business for an exit over the next seven years. And so it's easy to appreciate that ownership dictates the way that the business is operated in that context. But when you talk about a family-owned business, it doesn't matter what the size, where the the owner, the board member, to the extent there is one in, in, in name or otherwise, and the CEO are the same person it's hard to divorce yourself and say okay if i put my ownership hat on what type of return do i need to drive what type of cash flows do i need in order mm-hmm. for this to be a good investment and then you you put that aside once those things have been quantified and and some of that's math and and can fit into excel some of that is feelings and there isn't a right or wrong answer there and then you you set that aside and you say okay from the board's perspective, the board's job is to take the investor or the owner mandate and go execute on it. Mm. Right? And and then the board's job is to hire the CEO to to go out and actually deliver that business plan. And so the board's job is to say, OK, this business, in order for us to accomplish these investor goals or returns, means that we have got to accomplish these things. I've got to have this type of management team in place. We have to have these types of products and services with this type of gross and net income. All of the normal business things that one way, like, you know be familiar with, and then hold the CEO accountable for delivering those. But mm-hmm. it has to be a dispassionate uh, relationship because the reality is for close held business owners, when you wrap the legacy and the identity issues into the business, it becomes very, very difficult to analyze this like you would any investment, right? You go hire mm-hmm. your investment advisor to buy publicly traded stocks and you're going to tell them, Hey, I want a high growth portfolio of, of you know, eye-watering, You know, tech companies, or I want a conservative portfolio of companies going to generate a really nice dividend, and I want it to be a a slow grower, but I also don't want it to, to jostle around in value. Well, that has a very dramatic outcome on the way that the portfolio is constructed. And what oftentimes happens is people will focus that level of attention on a small percentage of their net worth, but on their most important asset, they don't think about it with that same lens. And the exact same habits and tactics that work when building your quote unquote investment portfolio, anywhere else absolutely yield significant benefits from the owner,
1: board, CEO, yep, yep, manager yep. perspective. Well, and the, like, and so I see like 100 tracking man, and I think about like the challenges of like first of all, like you have to get it first, right? So that's like step one. It's like okay, now there are different hats: ownership, leadership, board, all that stuff. But like, even if you do get it, like if I were to throw myself in that position which I have been throughout these various partnership things is like, you go, it's kind of like setting your own personal fitness goals and then going, like, we could just sleep it <laughs> like because yeah. you're not your own coach. So like, there's this arbitrary like mandate and like, and I think about like, and you and I were chatting about this in a previous conversation, like for better or for worse, for private equity, whether the own whether the leaders or people love it or hate it, the mandate's clear. And I think, you know, just like with children, they like, clarity whether they like it or not the the rules or not the clarity is necessary so like the ambiguity and all that swirling around becomes difficult but at least you can compartmentalize it before we keep going what are your thoughts for like the size you know the various size companies do they need a board like i mean, just kind of i want to kind of a board is obviously in various types of boards of directors fiduciary versus just advisors but do you do you need a board to act like this I and how think, do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I think your framework of a coach or an accountability buddy is, is important. And and a well-executed board does just that, right? It's accountability buddy for the CEO, but it's also an accountability buddy to the ownership group. And and so I, I don't think there's a, a size limit, you know, X number of dollars in revenue, a formal board, not a formal board. The reality is most people need a kitchen cabinet. And you can call it what you'd like, but you need a couple of people that you can have a really honest dialogue with Uh, on a regular basis so that there is a feedback loop and you have to trust and respect them enough that you will actually take their advice to heart. And hopefully they've got different views and different perspectives and different experiences so that you're not just in an echo chamber. But it doesn't matter if you've got a $2 million a year business or a $2 billion a year business, that relationship with that accountability buddy or those accountability buddies is absolutely valuable. We have clients with formal boards and formal roles and positions, and we travel to board meetings, and there's a bunch of pomp and circumstance. And some of the best and I think most effective boards are, quote-unquote, advisory boards. Nobody's got an actual position. We get together a couple of years. We talk about the really hard stuff. And then we say, hey, we're going to hold you accountable delivering on this. And we come back three or four months later. Maybe it's scheduled in advance. Maybe it's not. But we're getting really high value because we're focused on the outcomes. We're not focused on you know, all of the trappings of quote unquote, a board. And I think people get hung up the re- on the, the loop, the loop of the, the, whatever the dialogue is. A board sounds so fancy and stodgy. <laughs> it sounds like it's only for big public companies. If, if we think about a board simply as uh, a group of individuals hold us accountable to being the best owner and the best CEO possible, that's useful
1: everywhere. Well, and let's, I love it, man. And let's, I think about as we continue this, coming up with those goals of what is the target like there's the equity growth goal and then there's the income growth goal from the ownership level that we're talking about what level of clarity do people have on their long-term portfolio and seeing things as assets or not should we start there yeah Uh, so uh, being a bit
0: glib here zero I mean, there's no clarity on this.
1: I hate that I laugh because I laugh because it just makes me know that I'm not crazy with all my conversations.
0: You are not crazy. I mean, you know, in my experience, uh, you have to eat an elephant one bite at a time. And so we start with the things that are easiest to quantify that make the biggest impact on the family. It traditionally is around things like cash flow needs and quote unquote, the amount that we're willing or able to reinvest and how that collides with our own personal needs. Obviously, taxes dictate a significant portion of that. And so to the extent that we're doing really creative tax planning, that allows us to keep more in the business versus take more out of the business. Um, and then over time, as we get more sophisticated as an organization, we being the board and the business, we can start talking about value. Because value is such an abstract concept. That it's really hard to get our arms around, and the reality is, your company's only worth what somebody's willing to pay you. And you know, if you take the the Arcona Ryan Tansom approach of building a business with sustainable, repeatable, predictable, transferable cash flows, look at that! The- yeah, come on. The business has value, but if you're going to transfer the business to your kids as part of an estate plan, we are going to engineer the value to the smallest defensible amount possible. Conversely, okay. uh, we're working on a transaction that should close tomorrow we have pushed as much goodwill and blue sky and excitement into this business as we possibly can because a third party is about to, to make this yep. investment. So the idea of value is really a challenge. What well, is less of a challenge and what's easier to focus on is what are our needs? This concept yep. of a gap analysis, okay, to accomplish our goals, we need this many dollars showing up to, as, as this type of income. Well, I can either cash flow this asset or I can sell it. Take this home net after tax and then support it with after tax earnings. That's a totally different relationship. And what we know is we need this number, not how much the company's actually going to sell for. And so mm-hmm. it gets to be a more complicated analysis that we have to work into over time. And, of course, businesses change. Like the company that I was sitting on a board meeting today, it's a, it's a notoriously low margin business. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue to make single digit millions of dollars of income. Uh, in in this year, because sounds they're, stressful. <laughs> they're they're in a cyclical uh, bear market for their industry. Uh, that business is substantially less valuable than a service business with a bunch of contracts that's making four million dollars a year of income and could sell for a quote unquote giant multiple. This is a company that's multiple generations in the making, and there's no terminal event. So value for them is
1: not as useful. Yep. 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 So love the, the clarification on that. And like, just to pull on the the examples that you gave of like the family estate gifting versus like the third party, you know, what we're talking about a lot, I'm curious if you still track this and how you would, um, Think about this, the intrinsic financial value, where essentially you could do private equity recap on it and the ESAP, but there's like you could go to a bank and be like, this is a justifiable cash flow statement, and we can justify this kind of debt and this kind of buyout by the cash flow over X amount of time. That is what is as highly probable of a guarantee. And then you can gift that, or then you can grow that or push the blue sky up of that, but you're working on that cash flow. Yeah,
0: is, no, that, no, is that is no, that track?
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the reality is
0: uh, a business with sustainable, repeatable, predictable, transferable cash flows is a good business. And the business that will have the highest probability of being successful as part of a multi-generational estate plan or being sold to private equity or rolled up in a strategic acquisition or sold to an ESOP, it's the same. That that generates a higher probability of success regardless of where the ultimate owner is yep,
1: going.
0: Yep. So build a good business and then it, the rest of it. Kind of then have
1: it. choices. Yeah, yeah. And I'm trying to – I was looking at my notes. I'm trying to – oh, you said uh, – okay, I know exactly where I'm going with this. So w- there's so many f- first-generation business owners. Yours truly here and a lot of our clients and a lot of people we talk to is – that they don't view themselves as wealthy while they own their company. Even if they're listening to this shit, even if they've gone through the training, even if they have sustainable, predictable, transferable cash flow, they're going, Well, I still am broke. <laughs> and so how where in the spectrum of understanding their wealth and understanding the value of what they have do your clients have? Because I it sounds like there's a lot of these commonalities, regardless of the size. How, how do people perceive the, the the company as that asset value? Uh <laughs> The
0: number of times I've heard that somebody's not wealthy because they don't put any intrinsic value on their business is too numerous to count. Uh, it, it happens all the time. So our average client has an allergy to cash. Uh, <laughs> you said it. I was not going to take the words <laughs> out of your mouth. You said it. <laughs> allergy to liquidity, right? Or allergy right. to cash, you said? So okay. Cash, liquidity. I mean, an- anything yeah. that uh, that isn't their business or the real estate that supports their business or a couple of nice homes. They, they, their dollars are ultimately back at work for them in their company. And so th- their wealth is created by concentrating their risk in, his, in a few specific spaces. And as a consequence of that, there is this perpetual feeling of, quote, unquote, being broke. We had a client many years ago that came to us. who was referred by by an accountant, and he was making, on average, kind of $15 million a year of EBITDA and uh, was building a nice little investment portfolio off to the side and when he came to us, uh, and his, his business was in the transportation space, he said, I'm worth about 10 million bucks. Right? So <laughs> I said, tell, tell me more. He said, well, tell got- me more. Very curious. I've got $2 million of uh, you know, cash and securities at Merrill Lynch, and I've got $8 million of depreciated rolling stock in my transportation business. That's the value of my company. I said, okay, Mr. Client, from the IRS's perspective, your company's probably worth something like four to six times this $15 million of EBITDA. And as a consequence, you're probably worth, let's call it $60 to $75 million, not $10 million. It, no, that can't possibly be. It's like, well, you can feel about it however you would like, but our friends at the IRS <laughs> they have a very different perspective and absent your ability to prove to them that the value of your business is negative, then that's the value of your company. And so, you know, that, When we look at net worth, for example, we think about it through the lens of the IRS. They have what's called the highest and best use standard. Absent some planning, they're going to try and put the biggest number they possibly can. And so you can feel you're like you're broke. And in many cases, we've had lots of clients who have, you know, less liquidity in their bank account than I have in my pocket right now as a consequence of every nickel being invested back in their business. Mm -hmm. But others feel very different about the value of your company.
1: Isn't that so true, man? And like, I'm curious, man, and... This is a slight tangent from the kind of the the path that I see us going down, but like the, the, um, the allergy, like do taxes suck? I can, we can just say it like, obviously they're not, they're necessary for part of the machine. We don't have to go down the political route or any of that stuff, but more from the narrative of the psychology of this, Brandon, I see that like, once you get to the point where you're projecting out into the future and you can know that you can pay your taxes, take your distribution and have enough funding in the business. yeah. The allergy to taxes becomes less. It's like that sucks, but it's not like I have no cash. My ta- my CPA gave me my my bill that's like in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, and I have ten days to pay it, and I have no cash. So then the the resentment grows and it grows and it just piles on. So I'm curious if you see how you see that. Uh, so we had a client in 2020 and 2021 that was
0: making huge investments in his business and was able through bonus depreciation and expensing to basically eliminate his tax bill. And in 2022, a lot of those investments had gone or were behind him. And so he paid like 10 million bucks in tax. And that's his projection for you know 11 days from now. And when, he, when we talked about it, he was really frustrated. Oh, this is bullshit. I haven't paid tax in the last couple of years. They must have changed the rules. It's like, no, you made a shit ton of money. You rather make a shit ton of money or not. And he said, oh, I guess that's a good point. So, you know, taxes blow. Everybody's on the same page with that. But at the same time, it is an artifact of having a tremendous amount of success. And, yeah, we can we can help improve things around the margins with a lot of thoughtful tax planning. But you'd rather be in the situation where you owe some tax than not a hundred times out of a hundred.
1: Oh, agreed. And I think when there's the mismatch of the operations and the cash flow of the business, and then when you layer on the estate plan and the grand plan that you help people with, the mismatch can get totally out of f and control would be my guess. Because I, I will never forget the story you told me at that freaking lunch. It was whatever estate plan you were talking about to, to prove the point, because you did, because it stuck in my head, was so some family, uh, the mom and dad like had gifted the company to the trust. Yeah. And then the kids were beneficial owners of the trust, but the parents were still paying the taxes and like yeah. $3 million in taxes or something like that. So, like, the whole thing was mismatched from cash flow to equity growth yeah. from the overall portfolio. Well, and, and, and uh, a
0: wonderful – if we look at it narrowly through the lens of estate planning, it's a fabulous estate planning strategy. The estate planner gets A-plus marks because he created a structure that is going to drive the family's personal network down, reducing estate taxes. A-plus. Unfortunately, you can't look at something narrowly through the lens of estate taxes. So that family's situation was they basically only owned 30 percent of the company as mom and dad founders. The rest of the business was owned by the kids. So not only were they paying the tax, but in order for us to get the money for the mom and dad to pay the tax, we had to gross these distributions up huge because of program (laughs) distribution requirements. So three million dollars cost us ten million dollars of distributions. That, that meant Jesus. $7 million was landing in the kids' trust with no tax liability for mom and dad effectively to break even, and the kids were living a very nice lifestyle as a consequence.
1: I know uh, uh, I want to die and become one of their kids.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, uh, unfortunately, no adoptions as far as I'm aware. But, but you, know, you talk about really hammering the company's ability to, to grow. We're having to kick out an extra $7 million a year. Oh, and by the way, we had some bank covenants. That really challenged our ability to make those distributions because while they had a tax distribution covenant in there, they didn't appreciate that the estate plan required gross-ups. You know, big money <sighs> center bank said, Yeah, we don't care what kind of estate planning you did. If your tax bill is three million, you can take out three and a half. And so we had this highly lawyered up negotiation in order to make some changes to that. Oh, and by the way, that gets worse. So a couple of years after the fact, they had an offer to buy that business. Private they hired an investment bank. Uh, investment bank put together a book. This is before we were really as intimately involved. And uh, they thought they were going to take the business to market. Let's call it for $100 million bucks, plus or minus. And the kids own 70% of the business. They own 30% of the business. If they sold it for all cash, you know, we can talk about what the structure might have been. But if they sold it all for cash, kids get $70 million of cash. Mom and dad get $30 million of cash. And with depreciation recapture, probably owe $30 million of tax. <laughs> So this oh that represents the sum total of their life's work, they get zero from, and they were in their 60s. They had a long life ahead of them, and their kids get all of the proceeds. Once again, from an estate planning perspective, narrowly focused on what generates the least total estate tax, A-plus marks for the estate planning attorney. But because the estate planning attorney and the CPA and the investment advisor and the insurance agent weren't talking to each other, the plan was structured in such a way that the family, and this is actually a tragic story, decided not to go through that transaction. They since retooled their plan, but the market's retrenched. The value oh, that know. business went, let's call it from $100 million to it, let's call it the beginning of COVID, 60. like 40. Oh, a huge fuck. amount of their 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 business dried up. Now, they're back up to that $100 million range, and we're probably going to be taken to market at some point. Now is not the optimal time for, for a variety of reasons, but... They had this idea. They, there was very little gas in the tank. They had this idea that they were going to sell. They were mentally attached to this big number and this LOI that they had solicited, or IOI they had solicited, and mm-hmm. they had to totally retool because there was this very rigid estate plan. Once again, forget estate plan, ownership, right? The ownership yeah. structure dictated the business outcome, and it should always be the opposite. You should never have the quote-unquote tax tail wagging the business dog.
1: Well, and that's where you, you nailed it, the ownership structure should dictate the goals so like when you're bringing on a client and like and you're because i think you 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 kicked off the whole conversation very well like it's the whole picture and it's it's so difficult i've struggled this with man since i've met you it's like how do you describe a full picture to someone that doesn't see the full picture they're looking at their one puzzle piece and that's hence the point of the podcast right but like when you walk in and you're trying to have. A part of a trust, who's got a trustee. You got five family members, three of them in the business, three of them out of the business. A board, and you're walking in. And <laughs> I'd love to, man. I I think you should have a reality show at some point. But like, <laughs> how do you? What are the types of conversations to then sync those people up and say, hey, what is the equity growth? It's that terminal value that you're trying to identify because you're going to have to figure out the cash flow reinvestment strategies from the ownership perspective because. You know, not to lose sight of the whole point of the conversation is the management team is going to have to get what resources do you have and what are the goals that are aligned with ownership. Yeah. So, like when you're going into that shitstorm, how do you think through and what kind of questions to get them targeted towards a target valuation and then to get to that cash flow? Uh,
0: once again, not intending to sound glib, but the the most frequent question is why? Why do you do it <laughs> this way? Oh, well, wh- you have a truck. Wh- why? why? You take out this much money. Why? Here's the structure we put in place. Here's the entity type we put in place. I, we're an escort or we're a part. Why? Why, 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 why? And after enough questions, there's an appreciation that perhaps there's more to the picture. And, and once we, once we get that acceptance to your point, we were able to view the aperture, not through one puzzle piece, but we widen it a bit so we can see three or four. Now we can start having a conversation about what? What do we actually want? Mm. To you know, in, in some respect, I think goals are totally overrated because I've never had a client who said, you know what I'm looking for? Less control. I want, you know, trust fund babies that are unproductive. I want to pay more taxes. So like generally, like the, the goals that you get when you first have a conversation with somebody, if you don't really hold them accountable to really drill down and talk about priorities and trade-offs, it's, it's fluff. It's not actionable information. I want to save less. I want to pay less taxes. Okay. Make less money. Well, I don't want to do that. Okay. Well, clearly it's not just less taxes. <laughs> I
1: it's- love it, dude. I had my favorite quote ever. The, this, these two brother-in-laws came in through our training. It was me and Matt going through it. We could jump on. We're like, let's say it was John and Joe. John and Joe, what do you want? And Joe, let's say he was the crabby older guy. And he's like, I want to make more money and do less work. I'm like me too. (laughs) Do we even need to do the rest of this? (laughs) Oh, it's it's. But I love how you said that. It's you're finding like it's the nuances of oh Joe cares about his niece and who gets this, who has income from this because she gets her satisfaction from that. That's all tied to the business or her role. Like so, how are you going? Like when you're going through that, how are you helping them realize what the point of the of the of the exercise is too?
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, we have not figured out a silver bullet. So when we onboard a new client, we spent an inordinate amount of time trying to get to know them. We download hundreds, sometimes thousands of documents, and we look at each individual facet of their tax, legal, and business life. Uh, we're not smart enough to do this in white papers and narratives, so we turn this stuff into pictures. And we, we sit down with them over the course of several meetings, and this takes months and months. You're not smart. I
1: have to interrupt you. You're not smart enough, or you're smart enough to know that that's how your clients think.
0: Yes. Right? I mean, it's, just, I mean, it's also yeah. not how I think, right? If yeah, I have yeah. the option to, say, distill down 50 different complicated things into one picture or write me a 15-page summary, yeah, right. I'd rather have the photograph. And so we then turn it in and say, hey, is this what you want? Like, is there a gap between where we're at today? Because this is like GPS, right? Right? You can know exactly where you want to be, even if you had every goal identified. If GPS can't identify your current location, you're not going anywhere. Now, think yep. about that. this. is life-changing technology with thousands of satellites and geosynchronous orbit. And if it can't locate your cell phone, you're dead in the water. We're back to an old key map. And so we spend a lot of time trying to identify that current location. And clients oftentimes start that, what well, doesn't feel right, right. They talk about mm-hmm. that gut right? They don't Mm -hmm. know what isn't right, but it doesn't feel right. And it's from there that we can get some buy-in to say, hey, is this important enough for you to focus on? Because it's going to require you and your team and and your team's team to eat some glass for a while. It's not going to be fun. It's going to require some real effort. And there are trade-offs along the way. And if we do that with each facet of their life, and then we try to bring it all together in a separate meeting and say, here's how all of these things ultimately intersect with each other. And here's specifically how your estate plan and just asset testing, you know, your business plan or vice versa, that gives them the ability to say, all right, damn it, that's enough. Here's the three things that I'm want to, willing to focus on above all else. And by the way, I'm willing to sacrifice these things to accomplish that because it's not pay less yep. taxes. There's a million ways to pay less taxes. One of them is make less money and nobody wants to do that.
1: <laughs> I love it, dude. Well, and I, so the, the word that you keep you keep saying that I really like is the trade-offs. So trade-offs force a decision. So like what I'm constantly saying is, if you have enough time, capital and energy, you can truly do whatever the hell you want. And if you don't have a timeline, then it doesn't matter. Right. But like, we're not the Federal Reserve. So like they're apparently the only one in there, like again, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But the, the reality is it
0: sure sounds like you want to go down the rabbit <laughs> hole. I just
1: uh, you know what? I don't know. I have to wake enough cash flow to pay for my taxes and pay for my payroll. So like I would like the the, the game to also participate in that kind of rule structure. So the the, the my point is everybody that w- listens in or anybody that's in privately held business has those constraints, which is what is the valuation? That's why the timeline, I always am just driving that timeline, even if it's arbitrary, because then we can have the constraints of time, capital, and the energy, which is the board or the, the, the management team. So how do you help people think through those trade-offs? Because when I look at someone like your role, Brandon, that is the best use of someone that understands the whole picture that can help you think through the trade-offs when it might not be baked into a spreadsheet. Yeah. Uh, decision
0: fatigue is a real thing, right? It, that the old paradox of choice. Why does uh, Costco sell so much peanut butter when they only have Kirkland and Jif? Like, you know, they don't have. There's a there's a store here in Houston called Central Market. Kid you not, they've got like 70 different types of artisanal peanut butter. Like, <laughs> it, it's it's overwhelming. You know, these were nuts that were roasted by the sun and the you know Savannah, Georgia. Is that better? I, I don't know. And you stand there and your drools come out of your mouth because you don't know what to select. <laughs> but when you go to Costco, you know that they've curated something that's of high value and of high quality, and I don't have to think about it. And so as an advisor, for all advisors, their job is to distill knowledge into wisdom, right? And that wisdom is to take the universe of 50 different things you can consider and give them some very actionable options. It's not our job or other advisors' job to make the decision, but it's our job to inform them, here's the, here's the two things that we think are most relevant to you. And here are the pros and cons. And of course, the client can always say, neither of those work. And then it's back to the drawing board. But 99 times out of 100, they're going to say, if these are the two options that you believe are in my best interest, and here are the pros and the cons, I can digest that. And it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book when you're a kid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Distill it down to the the single point that provides the most operating leverage. Make a decision left or right. And now we have a separate decision. And there's an old uh, adage about, I don't care if I get to vote so long as I get to pick the candidates. And so that's it, right? Our job is to help them narrow down the universe of unlimited options so that they can make yes or no decisions and be actionable instead of become experts themselves.
1: I love it, man, because like I think that's um, specifically when you get into like the danger of and I'm thinking thinking through this while we're while we're talking right now, but like if you're looking at just a puzzle piece of like that estate plan it's helpful for that mind that doesn't understand the big picture to understand just those trade-offs. So they're, 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 people are looking at the constraints and the trade-offs of puzzle piece by puzzle piece and doesn't they don't understand the connection between all those things. So like, <clears throat> they're, people are doing their best or their advisors are doing their best in each role. So let's talk about <clears throat> how all of those different strategies from taxes to estate planning, all that stuff, are driven backwards from that goal. So as you're thinking through let's say like the people got their equity targets or whatever, how do you start thinking through the strategies of not only the, like I said, the estate plan, the tax plan, but also then the cash flow plan that all the way gets to the point where you're in a boardroom with a management team that goes, we're not set up for failure here. Yeah,
0: Uh, that's a big question and a lot to unpack.
1: And yeah, I did it in the, the, I I have to interrupt because I did an overarching, like that's the kind of the journey, we can take it as detailed or as like, as a cliff note as we need to. Okay.
0: Fair enough. Well, well, let me, let me start with part of the reason why I think so many folks are challenged with this. So we made a business basically saying, I don't know you, you've had a lot of success. This is going to be bold, but your plan sucks. I know I've never seen it before. And if you (laughs) give me a shot, I will prove to you that your plan sucks. And I've never once, after going through what we call due diligence hundreds of times, had a client who ever said, where I am and where I want to be is the same spot. There's always a gap. Now, sometimes the gap is enormous, and they're highly motivated to get working on it. Other times, they say the gap is small enough, and they're tired enough that they don't want to focus on it, but there's always a gap. And so when you start talking about why that gap exists, you say, okay, how much time did you spend with your business attorney when you set this company up? And inevitably it's 10 minutes. I called them up and said, I want an LLC. And the, the attorney had no more information or context other than I want an LLC. And you called your accountant up and said, I've got I want a new business, and you know, tax it however you want it to be taxed. And they choose S Corp for partnership. And as a consequence, the attorney doesn't know what this business is going to be operated in. The attorney doesn't know. How it's going to be operated. The attorney doesn't know what language to put in the operating document to fit within those goals. The accountant doesn't know how that those tax decisions, income tax decisions, are going to affect the overarching plan. And then, by the way, you go to a totally separate attorney to do the estate plan. That has nothing to do with the operating document, has nothing to do with the tax election, and oftentimes doesn't even know what the client owns because the client doesn't know what the client owns.
1: Oh, and <laughs> I mean, let me keep going. This is too fun. And then, and then I'm going to – if I'm the client, then I'm going to go to four different banks, open up four checking accounts because I get credit cards and see how much – line, how big of a line of credit I can get and what kind of lending ability I have based on what a- – <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and their personal yeah, it, guarantees on different things oh God <laughs> their, their,
0: their life is is so fractured and fragmented that nobody including the client has a real solid understanding of what they own, let alone what it's worth. I mean the value thing is hard but like people should have a pretty good sense for I own this thing. I mean, the number of times that we've gotten to know a client, and six months later they say, "Oh, by the way, did I tell you about this you know, very large investment I made five years ago in this building on the corner that you drive past every day?" It's like, how did that slip your mind? And it wasn't until you know some tax form was sent to them that they had forgotten about that we that they unearthed that. And so, if, if the professionals don't even know what you what you own and where you hope to go, how can they provide world class advice? And so, when I think about the infrastructure that's built around small business owners there's no shortage of professionals right it doesn't matter small business large business it doesn't matter what uh, specific discipline lots and lots of folks who claim to have expertise and by and large they give good advice it's just narrowly mm-hmm. focused on their discipline and so the you know if i'm thinking about trying to be in service to your listeners and not specifically for the small subset of families that we serve. And by the way, we only work with 25 families. We're a very small mm-hmm. organization. It's not as if we're able to help everybody. The reality is that you have to have a broader foundation. You, and you have to invite the folks in that you trust, that are your professional advisory team, into a bigger picture than I want an LLC. I want a tax return. I no. want, I mean, the number of times I've had a state plan attorney say, client calls it, I want to trust. And there was no information shared about what the trust is ultimately going to own, or the purpose of the trust, or or what the long-term value creation is going to be. I, that that's literally nine out of ten estate plans. I want a trust. Look, look, there's a million types of trust. That's like, I know. That's like saying I uh, want a business. Like that doesn't. <laughs> that doesn't...
1: I know. And, and Brandon, because you and I, I like I think there's one thing that like our brains are similar on is understanding and liking the liking the process of understanding complex systems and knowing the ripple effect of those. And I think about like how much you and I've talked about the healthcare system. It's like, I want to, I want a hip. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have a, you have congenital heart failure. So like, if you do that, you might die. <laughs> so like, it's just like the ripple, it's like you, it's that in, in, I think what you're, what you're alluding to, which I say a lot is the general contractor role needs to be played. And if you're, if the indecision is there, they're choosing the people listening in that don't have this, you're choosing to be the general contractor yourself. That's right. The architect, and, so, and, so the architect it, and the general contractor. Yeah.
0: So, so show up at that lot, freshly cleared, blueprints under your arm with 50 subcontractors around you. You've never built a house before. What are the chances that that house looks like the picture on the di- on the blueprint and doesn't fall over on your family? It, it's not zero, but it's not 100% either, right? And so right, right, you're right. Right, right. If you don't have somebody playing that role, you, you're you choosing to play that role because that role needs to be filled by somebody. And when you think about specifically that reverse engineering process, it is a slow evolution, not revolution. It's acknowledging that these systems are integrated, that you can't make a business decision without affecting the family, and that that ownership role, I mean, if if people walk away from this conversation with one major takeaway, it is that you have to, in my opinion, to be successful, make an effort to disentangle ownership, that quote-unquote board-level Once again, this idea of a coach, accountability buddy, and the CEO, even if it's you who plays all three roles, which is the way it works in most closely held businesses. And you have to have an honest conversation and work as hard as you can to to separate the legacy and identity of the business from, this is an asset like any other asset that I own, and I have to give some direction to my investment advisor, to my insurance agent, to my attorney, to my accountant. Why would I not think I need to give it? That some direction to my management team, to my managers, and ultimately to the rank and file employees.
1: Yep. And let's talk about yeah, 100%, man. And I think we've covered kind of the goal and process of the goal and back into that. And then now I think about back to the constraints why I think the constraints are so damn important is like there's only so much cash flow and it needs to be allocated for taxes, for distributions, and for reinvestment. And if there's no long-term goal that's difficult to peg to where you're at, like you were just talking about. So let's talk about in that board meeting, when you're sitting down with the executives and then the ownership, maybe kind of give us some compare and contrast of like when it doesn't go well, when those three things aren't clear and that long, then they're not tied to our long-term goal versus when they are, what is actually possible.
0: Yeah. So we've had one client in the last year who's made a, a big, um, leap forward. So, uh, this is a second-generation business, uh, and for the very first time, we have a non-family member as CEO. So, family-owned that is a big leap. That is a big leap. Professionally managed instead of family-owned, and family-controlled. And when we made the transition, this has been a long-time lieutenant and eminently qualified to run the business, and, and I think it was the right decision for their long-term success. Uh, after about a month or two being in the role, he called and said, "I don't know what I'm doing." So, tell me more. He said, I don't know what the family wants. I'm told to go make money. I'm told that we need to bring up the net income percentage. But I'm also being told, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't hire here, that I've got all these goals. He said, we need to understand what their objectives are. And so we had some family meetings without the rest of the leadership team, not in a board capacity. Because, by the way, while the entire family has ownership, directly and indirectly, in trust, not in trust, not all of them are in a position to actually make decisions. People will serve as trustees for others. There's only two or three people that really need to make those decisions. But we tried to build some collective uh, agreement. We had these family meetings. And we said, okay, guys, let's plan this out. If, if the company's goal is to generate a million dollars a year, the numbers are bigger, but a million dollars a year of net income, then you're going to spend $300,000 on taxes. That's $700,000 to you. And we're not gonna be able to take out all those dollars. So let's say we are able to take out half. That's 350 to you, 350 in the company. Is that acceptable? No. Okay. Does the company need to generate 2 million, 4 million, 10 million? Well, what we finally got to through this very painful exercise is the family wants 4 million bucks a year. That's kind of their minimum requirements. We said, okay, if that's your minimum requirements, do we need that this year or do we need to average that over the next several years? Because you've given the CEO a growth mandate that's gonna require significant reinvestment back in the business. They said, no, that's our minimum this year. I said, okay, if that's the minimum this year, are we are we going to go borrow to make up the gap? Because we're not going to be able to reinvest all of this money. Clearly, between taxes and this four million dollars, we're going to have to spend gross up about eight million dollars worth of distributions. And so, are we? If we have to knock out eight million dollars and we've only got a couple million dollars to reinvest, does that hit our growth number? Well, no. Okay. Well, you can't have everything.
1: You can't have the <laughs> constraints, 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 you can't. and trade-offs. You can't pay
0: your taxes, and you can't grow the business really quickly if you've only got two million dollars reinvest And you can't say, "I don't believe in debt." Well, that's a thing you can choose not to use it. But if you're not willing to borrow and you're not willing to leave the cash in the business, well, then the CEO needs to know that so they can build their plan accordingly. And you have to be realistic about the assumptions that you're going to make. And oh, by the way, the, the LTIP agreement and the compensation agreement for this executive really only worked if they were generating really significant numbers. And they're not going to get to those really significant numbers if they don't reinvest back in the business. And they can't reinvest back in the business because they've got current cash constraints. So we had that conversation. We came up with some clarity on the minimum cash needs. Nothing as sophisticated as equity value. And and we said, okay, CEO, we probably need to restructure your compensation agreement. And here's the mandate from the family. Is this uh, accomplishable with the current infrastructure, with this type of reinvestment? And it was it was pretty incredible because in many respects, the CEO was taking a pay cut because the, the numbers were so much smaller. And he said, not only yes, thank you, because for the first mm-hmm. time I've been a part of this organization, I actually have some clarity. And I feel like these are goals where I'm not being set up for failure. Yeah, and, dude, it, and I, I can then it. knock this on to my management team and be clear with them, because the how disheartening is it for you to be held accountable for a goal that there is zero percent chance you can hit?
1: Well, that's why when I do these, uh, when I ask that question in the visage workshops, I get laughter. It's because everybody in that room is going, yeah, that shitty situation you just painted is exactly what I'm dealing with. And, but like you said something on our, on our uh, previous call that I thought was really insightful. You were talking about like, well, and you actually alluded to it at the beginning of this conversation of like good executives, like it only takes a smart person to go through that shit storm once. And then you're walking and going, all right, I have a lot of questions before I <laughs> commit. So let's talk about like what like why was he so excited or she so excited to for that clarity and like how like how does that impact the professional management operations and the future board meetings of the conversations?
0: Yeah. so uh, you know there's been studies done about this. Matter of fact, I've heard some of this on previous podcasts from you around uh, hiring or recruiting executives. Culture is not ping pong tables and getting to wear slippers to work, Uh, and building the right culture is certainly important, but when employees are asked, an executive is an employee, uh, it's goals and roles, it's clarity about their job function and what they're being held accountable for. And so this individual had been with the family for a long time, for the very first time, had some understanding of what was expected of them and felt like it was a reasonable request that could actually be accomplished. Now I'm sensitive to the family because executives are notorious for sandbagging because they want to underpromise and overdeliver. And so that, that tension is there and I think in many respects it's healthy. But saying build something and giving them no framework is uh, it sets you up for a lot of disappointment.
1: Well, lot worse yeah. than no framework. It's no framework and then no when they ask. Well well that that's exactly he, he, he relayed to me.
0: Said I went to them we had to make this investment. It was a non-trivial expense. It wasn't part of the budget because they have this really neat opportunity to, to take down a job that was going to be very profitable for them. It was going to cost them basically a million bucks of non-budget expense. Is it not a part of the budget? Can't do it. I said, well, that's fine. But in order for us to hit this growth goal that you also arbitrarily picked, I need to be able to have this latitude. And we had this fluff built into other parts of the budget. I'll take it from there. Is I said, nope, absolutely not. Can't do it. He said, you know, my team had worked really hard to diligence this to come up with a solution. They were really frustrated when we came back with this arbitrary no. And so yep. that that push and that pull between the executive owner is, is always there. And what I would tell you is the more direct conversation you can have early on with that executive team, not only is the better investment experience for the ownership group, but also the higher the chance that that owner or that executive is going to stick around because they get whipsawed in family businesses left and right and to your point they are highly skeptical that it's going to be mm-hmm. run with the same professionalism and clarity that that private equity backed businesses yeah. that well, the public a, company businesses
1: 100% because the mandates are clear like we've talked about already and like I think about it's it's everybody complaining about the same situation but if we put it under their umbrella of clarity of a goal all the shit just snaps into clarity. Cause like, think about this, the amount of times I have conversations with the entrepreneurs, which you do probably, I'm sure is I'll never be able to find the rockstar to manage this thing. And it's like, well, cause you don't have a freaking goal and you're just going to pull company out or pull money out of the company with no plan and everybody knows it. So you can't find a goal because like, so it's like this, it's the chicken or the egg. Yeah. But what I think is so interesting about what you just described is like, this is from my own experience is like, without that clarity, like i and hate the emotion resentment so much I will do whatever I need to do to avoid resentment whether it's having those hard conversations getting that clarity because like what you just described I mean for all like thank God that that individual came and said something to you because how long could that have festered dude yeah. and just like the and then it's the micro cutting off of like decisions and the, and all that at the end of the day is doing is hampering the growth and the cash of that company yeah, it's you're like it's people
0: right yeah you're kneecapping yourself you know uh it reminds me of and this has been a kind of a universal situation for even like cfos in board meetings you know the number of times that going back to clarity that i've there's been some really complicated really robust report prepared as part of the board package and i look around the room and people skip right over it and i've got a sense that this thing took hours or days to prepare and you have an offline conversation with cfo and say hey this thing was really neat and sophisticated. Why'd you put it together? Oh, well, the CEO asked me about this in 1989. And so I've been doing it every single month for the last, you know, 30 some odd years. And it takes my team six hours to put it together. So Has anybody ever asked you a single question about it since then? No, but they wanted it once. So I just figured they always wanted it. Like the amount of, of frustration that that builds within that C-level executive and the controller and the accounting professionals that prepare this report to know that it's, ultimately not adding any value when they're already stressed and have other things that they could be working on it. That's an example of the type of things that you can avoid by just having some really honest conversations and providing
1: that clarity. Oh, it's a, yeah, you almost like I can, I can feel the anxiety or the lack of anxiety based on what situation we're bouncing in and out of in this conversation. Dude, this has been a blast, man. I I think about, I'm trying to think if I'm looking at my notes, if we covered everything, um, honestly, man, like it, what is when you when you are looking at the ability for the ownership group? You just mentioned that person that came in, that's out of the family, that came in. What do you see as the success as that ownership group st- takes off one of their hats and gives it to one of their key employees, or recruits someone in from out? Like you said, you listened to that that mini series. Like, how does it? What equals success? How do you see things that work and don't work in that? Yeah, uh,
0: here again, I think the, the answer is. Probably frustratingly simple. Uh, the reality is that you know, good habits, good hygiene, corporate hygiene go a long way. You don't have to do anything really sexy or sophisticated. Yeah, you know, take the estate planning. I've kind of railed on estate planning, which is not fair because it's it's important and we do a lot of it for our families. But when you have the added shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. And three generations, everybody's familiar with this idea. Somebody makes it and then the next generations who don't appreciate it, spend it like crazy and burn it down to the ground and somebody else has got to start over again. That's not inevitable. And when, when you actually dig into the, the literature and the research and say, why does this happen? It's not because uh, your tax strategist made a boneheaded tax decision. It's not because your investments earned 3% instead of 4%. It's because the family dynamics broke down because communication broke down, because expectations broke down. And as a consequence, it creates significant headwinds for the family to be able, with shared ownership, which is an extraordinarily hard thing to do, Mm -hmm. um, to transfer assets from one generation to the next. It is the exact same challenges for the management team. Amplified, because all of the friction and all the opportunities for disagreement and discord at the family level Ultimately, bubble down to that executive who is ultimately running their economic engine that is driving the family forward financially. And so, when I think about, you know, if if my living and giving strategy depends on cash flow from the business and the CEO doesn't know that, they can't be successful. So let's yeah. have an honest conversation, and it doesn't have to be steeped in emotion. Here's this is an asset, my asset, it needs to generate this type of X with this type of Y. And if you can't deliver on that, I need to be told no. I need to be told why you can't deliver on it, and I need reasonable the expectations mm-hmm, to mm-hmm, be provided mm-hmm. to me. But you have to be willing and able to have a, an uncomfortable conversation. It doesn't matter if it's your estate plan and tax strategy, or if it's working with that that executive. And so, literally starting at the bottom and just say, you know, having an honest conversation about what those minimum acceptable launch type expectations are really goes a tremendously long way.
1: It's 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 so true, man. And I think about like how much of this is so interesting to me. Like, is because as that first generation moves on, it, the anxiety. Okay, you gave me the the founders podcast, and I've been just just like consuming that as yeah. like an addict. And it's these stories of these people that just become crazy and factuate and just through all costs, we'll do whatever. But what happens is you get to the point where like, I, I listen to how you're articulating this conversation and it's because you go through this shit, you're going, I have to have this conversation. Cause if I don't, it's going to be 10 times worse. And that right there, I think is like one of the things that forces that discipline in the moment you're like, Hey, we can just let this go for this board meeting or we don't have to make a decision today And you don't realize what's boiling up and what's about to come. And so I think that's like the kind of, it's, it's not the broke necessarily. It's like that shit of the emotional dynamics that people don't realize are going to come no matter what. So so Richard Feynman said, a Nobel
0: prize winning physicist, certifiably smart guy said, the only way you can make physics more challenging is if electrons had feelings, right? Like All the tax and legal stuff, all the finance and business stuff is simple compared to the human dynamic in the family Uh and amongst the executive crew. And acknowledging that and confronting it head on, while not simple, is the clearest path forward. And what I would say is, and and, and this is the the tension with Gen 1 and Gen 2 in every situation, and certainly when you listen to the Founders Podcast, the number of commonalities between origin stories for these successful people I started with nothing. I had to scrimp and save and sacrifice. uh, Eat
1: glass and just get run over.
0: For years and decades until I finally made something of myself. That rinse and repeat over and over again. And in many respects, what the first generation does for the second generation, and it comes from a wonderful place, is try to protect them from all of those experiences that shaped them and caused them to be as successful as they are. And so when you think about, like, hey, you are who you are based on the experiences that you've had. They say experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. So in general, it's this situation where, like, you had some tough breaks, it shaped and formed who you are. You protected your kids from all of those tough breaks. And then you still want them to have the same risk appetite and same work ethic and same perspective. That's right. Those are, those are once again, skills that are honed over time, not God-given talents. You're not you're – not, I don't wake up in the morning – with a view about risk, because your parents had a view about risk, it's because of the experiences
1: that you all. Yeah, had. yeah, that's awesome, man! What a what a great way to wrap up. So I'm just gonna we'll just we'll just put a ball on this, man. It's been a, a absolute blast. So you know the two questions. Yeah, What the, I don't even have to give you any. I don't even given you any context, man. What ten, the word intentional mean for you? Uh, yeah, you know, ironically enough, this was the most
0: uh, nerve wracking part of the conversation. <laughs> I, I, I like that it made you nervous. I, I love it. I want to be I want to be pithy. I want to leave people with something that resonates and makes them think. Uh, unfortunately, I think I failed. I mean, look, uh, my business was built on humility, uh, recognizing we can't be just the smartest and hardest working people in the room. If that's our only differentiation, like we're in trouble. We have to have something unique. And, and what I would say when it comes to intentional is life's going to keep trucking, whether you like it or not. Entropy is the way of the universe. Most of the time, we don't have any uh, say in what happens. But as Viktor Frankl talks about in Man's Search for Meaning, like that, that split second between external stimulus we have absolutely no control over and our response, just take a deep breath, think hard, mm. think critically, try and put yourself in the other person's per- shoes or perspective, and then react. And it won't be perfect, but help you make better decisions over time.
1: I love it. So then what we have to do is our second business is come up with a buffer of a nanosecond, and we can sell that to everybody so we can avoid all of the catastrophes that we create for ourselves. Uh, I'm I'm number one. (laughs) Exactly. All right, man. (laughs) Where can everybody (laughs) – shot collar, exactly. Uh, I would just have it on permanently on. Um, All right. So where can people find you if they want to reach out?
0: Uh, Yeah, the best place would be uh, my office is uh, Brandon at MosaicAdvisors.com feel free to shoot me a note. I'll try to be responsive. My, my goal is to be of service to the listeners and to Ryan and his his crew there. And so uh, I can be a resource. I'm happy to, to share my experiences.
1: Uh, dude, this is so fun, man. The fact that it took us seven years to come back full circle, I'm just appreciative of your time, man. Appreciate uh, it.
0: I'll, ca- I'll catch you on episode 750. <laughs>
1: I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did you could probably tell I had a lot of fun catching up with an old friend who is doing a lot of really good things um, and just really making a name for himself in a space that I think is very confusing to a lot as you can tell everybody's trying to make progress towards their long-term goals everybody's got different goals they got different resources but I think if the people that are listening in if you have clarity on your long-term equity goal and you understand the income that you want along the way and you're realistic with the resources that your operations or your leadership team have in order to accomplish those goals and you sync everything up the less conflict is just amazing I should say the reduction in conflict and tension is amazing and then everybody can focus on execution and getting what everybody wants and you don't have to spend time trying to figure out what everybody wants. So if you enjoyed this podcast and you're enjoying this mini-series, go check out the boot camp. If there are too many uh, spots and it's all filled up, reach out to me. We've got one coming up in November or we also have the online version called the Intentional Growth Academy, which is the 2.0 version of the re-recording of the online one, 71 videos. We've got nine and a half hours and it's a lot of this material and worth diving into and you can go check that out at arcona.i stay tuned for next week's episode where we're going to be laying out some case studies about how leadership and ownership gets get aligned and then what can happen strategically and how people are rolling out strategic plans once they have alignment with the ownership as well as from a leadership's perspective what's it like working with ownership that have their goals what happens when they don't have their goals what happens when they do have their goals clarified and how that impacts the long-term success so i appreciate you tuning in and i will see you next week